Okay, thank you all for coming. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rabbi Ezra Frazier. I teach Biblical Hebrew here at YU. Very excited to be here today to discuss this important topic with you. I was a little bit nervous picking a topic like Yaakov and Esau because on the one hand, I feel it's a topic that's always worth revisiting. And the more you look at these stories, the more I looked at them even just preparing this year, the more you realize there are always things that maybe you overlooked in the past. On the other hand, I realize for many of you, this is a topic and a story that's already quite familiar. And so I hope, nevertheless, we'll be able to shed some new light on it here today. I think when you deal with a story that's familiar from, for many of us from our childhood, one of the great challenges is that we already know it. And more than that, we already have clear opinions about certain of the characters. In keeping with the theme of love and hate, I want us to focus today on Yitzchak's love of Esav. I think this is something where as we read through it, when we, when we look at the text in Parshat Toldo that tells us how Yitzchak loved Esav, how Yitzchak wanted to bless Esav and only wound up blessing Yaakov due to a mistake, our natural inclination is to have that same experience that most of us have with certain TV shows or movies, I guess it all depends what you like, if you're a sports fan, so you have this feeling when you see your team's quarterback on the field, he's about to throw the ball, you see a guy from the other team making a break on the ball, you know that guy is going to intercept the pass, and you're just screaming at your TV, come on, don't throw it, and of course the quarterback throws it anyway and it gets intercepted. Those of you who prefer maybe more of a type of programming that involves romances. I'm sure you've seen this plenty of times where there's some nice female character in some TV show who's just looking to meet a nice guy and some guy who you know is a rotten jerk because you've seen all the previous episodes of this show is suddenly acting very charming to her and she's so excited he's going to take her out on a date. And again, you're screaming at your TV, don't you know who this guy is? He's so rotten, he's so terrible. Come on, don't fall for him again. And I think we kind of want to Yell at Yitzhak in the same way. We see the story being played out, and he's, you know, we read, Ve'ahav Yitzhak and Esav. Yitzhak loved Esav. And we're like, come on, we, we, already, we learned in kindergarten that we're supposed to call him Esav HaRasha. What do you mean you love him? And then this just kind of plays through that Yitzhak's blessing Yaakov, thinking he's Esav. On the one hand, we want to scream at him, don't you realize it's Yaakov? At the same time, we also want to scream at him, but really, you think he's Esav and you're going to bless him being Esav? Come on! And what I want to do today is first look through the Psukim once to get a taste of what it is that Yitzchak saw. You know, if we use that sports analogy from before, by now they have so many camera angles in these games, one thing they can do that's kind of insightful is when the quarterback makes that terrible play and he looks like he threw it right to the guy on the other team, They'll replay it from the angle, from right behind, the camera right behind the quarterback's head. What did he see at the moment that left his hand? And a lot of times when they do that, you realize when he was about to release it, there was a guy on his team right there, and he thought that guy was going to go this way, and the ball would go right to him. And then half a second later, the guy on his team broke to the left instead of the right, and that's why it went to a guy on the other team. I hope as we look through these psukim, that's the experience we're going to have, where we're going to find that even though at first glance, what Yitzchak's doing seems outrageous. What was he possibly thinking to try and bless Esav, to love Esav more than Yaakov? But when we look at things as they unfold from his point of view, as he sees them, 
Well, look at them a little bit differently. Now, if we think about who Esav is and what it is that makes him so heinous, so despicable that we can't get what Yitzhak would like him, we have to be a little bit fair, first of all, limit ourselves to what it says in the Psukim and not in Midrashim, for the simple reason that Midrashim are written in hindsight. As a kid, I never thought it was fair when I learned that Noach called an Ish Tzadik, and Rashi says right there, oh yeah, he was a Tzadik, Bidor Tav in his generation. But if he lived in Avram's generation, he would have been a nobody compared to Avraham. I thought, where did Rashi quote in Chazal, where did they get that from? That's not fair. The Torah said he was a Tzadik, and you're already putting him down. And the answer is, they have hindsight. They know at the end of the story, this great Tzadik, who you want to put up there on par with someone like Avraham, comes out of the Teva, plants a vineyard, gets drunk and exposes himself. And so, with that knowledge, it's easy for them to say, yeah, he's called a tzaddik, but a tzaddik like Avraham? Come on. Could you ever imagine Avraham getting drunk like that? Exposing himself like that? You know, Moshe Rabbeinu does various things over the course of the Chumash, where Mephoshim will debate, did he do something a little bit inappropriate? Let's say he gets very frustrated when his first trip to Paro leads to Paro making the situation worse. The power of telling the Jews, go make your own bricks. So Moshe goes back to Hashem and says, why did you send me in the first place? What was the point? Things are only getting worse for the people. One of you in Chazal says, good, Moshe is evolving into a leader finally. He's sticking up for his people. Another of you sees this as a little bit of chutzpah Hashem told him all along that the first time he goes to Paro, Paro is not going to let them free. And so Moshe went, and the first time Paro didn't let them free. Where does he get off talking back to God about that? And so one of you in Chazal says there, when Hashem responds to Moshe and says, You know, that was the opening act, and now you're going to see what I'm really going to do to Paro. Part of what God's hinting to him is, now you're going to see what I do to Paro, as opposed to what I do to the kings in Canaan. You're not going there. You're going to die before we, that part of the story unfolds. And again, Chazal have hindsight. They know that later on in the Chumash, Moshe's ultimate punishment is going to be not entering the land of Israel, and they can sort of see earlier points where Moshe might have done something a little bit questionable and say, maybe already there, that was the beginning of Moshe's undoing. But when we read through a text, or for that matter, when Yitzchak lived through the story with Esav, he doesn't know what's going to happen later. He doesn't know that someday a prophet called Malachi is going to come along and write that God hated Esav, at Esav's saneti. Yitzchak doesn't know that. What does he see in front of him? So if you look on the first page of the source sheet, I gave you sort of selections from the book of Rishit. These are a few psukim that are, you know, a few key highlights of points that seem to be critical points in terms of whether Esau should or should not be loved. So already before they're born, Rivka is feeling a lot of pain in her chest. The babies are kicking. She seeks out God, and God says to her, the Rav Yavod Sa'ir. So Rivka gets this prophecy, which at the end of it, Rav Yavod Sa'ir, seems to be saying, it's Puzzle Gimel you see on the screen, that seems to be saying that, how do we translate it over here? The older shall serve the younger. So we know, Rivka clearly knows, presumably Yitzhak knows, that Yaakov is destined to be greater than Esau. Esau is going to serve Yaakov. And so, where does Yitzchak get off liking Esav? Before they were born, he should already have an anti-Esav bias on the basis of this prophecy. Then we continue. And a little bit later in the same chapter, these kids grow up, and we're told that 
in Pesach of Zion here, Esav, the hunter, not the most peace-loving profession. You already get a sense he's someone who might be inclined towards violence. And he doesn't come off looking too great from this whole story with the Bechora. We'll leave aside for now the question of whether Yaakov looks all that great. You know, was this the right way to go about acquiring the Bechora or not? But even if initially we feel bad for Esav, you know, poor guy, he was hungry, Yaakov exploited his hunger, the Torah ends by telling us, He despised it. That's not a very nice character trait to have. He despised the Bechora. Okay, you could say, well, look, he liked the Bechora, but he was really hungry and he was desperate, so even though he loved the Bechora, what could he do? He had to sell it off. But he despised it. Doesn't look, doesn't look like a very refined person conducting himself in that way. And so, already again we're telling ourselves, how could Yitzchak like this guy? This guy, he's unrefined, he's pre- predestined to serve his brother. What does Yitzchak exactly see in him? Continuing along, and here we reach the end of this chapter, if we go on to the next chapter, a lot of the next chapter takes us away from Yaakov and Esav, deals with Yitzchak's experience coping with a famine, Yitzchak's experience with Avimelech. But towards the end of this chapter, and again, this is on your sheet as well, we find this perhaps the most explicitly outrageous thing that Esav does. Esav gets to be 40 years old. That's the same age when his father gets married. Esav ostensibly wants to be just like his father Yitzchak, get married at 40. But when Yitzchak got married, Avram made a very big deal about the fact that Yitzchak should not marry a Canaanite. Now, it's not entirely clear from the text why not. I think, intuitively, we're like, who'd want to marry a Canaanite? They're all a bunch of pagans. You know, that raises the question, were Avram's relatives in Aram Naharayim in Haran, were they exactly monotheists? You know, Levin's so upset later that Yaakov stole his gods from him. So it's not clear exactly what makes Avram's relatives so much better. But there seems to be this assumption somehow the Canaanim are still worse. You know, maybe in addition to worshipping idols, their whole culture is more, is more corrupt, is more wicked. But whatever the reason, Avram was very clear to his servant that under no circumstances could Yitzhak marry a Canaanite. A Canaanite. What does Yitzhak do? He's going to be just like his father, get married at 40. He marries local women. Yehudit bar basmat shouldn't be doing that. And Yitzhak doesn't like it either. Here it describes as a bitterness. There's a debate among the fortune. This word morat, is it like mar, bitter, like this translation? Or is it, like Rambam has a section of Mishnah Torah called Hilchot Mamrim, which deals with sort of authority and rebellion. So either he created a bitter experience for Yitzhak and Rivka, or he acted rebelliously towards them. Apparently, Yitzhak noticed this, right? Instead of bitter for them, or rebelling against him, Yitzhak's aware that Esav did a big no-no. Nevertheless, what's the next thing Yitzhak wants to do after this, as we move along to the next chapter? Let's skip the chapter, sorry. Moving right along, we were just told about Esav's inappropriate marriage. Now Yitzhak is getting a little older, he summons Esav and says, I'm getting old, I don't know when I'm going to die, I want to bless you. Right now, right after we finally thought you, like you're starting to get it, we finally thought you're realizing that this kid is no good, he's, he's violating the one 
cardinal rule that Avram set for you in your life of not marrying local women, now you want to go give him a bracha? Again, if this is playing out in our TV, we're screaming at our TVs now. Don't you see who this guy is? How can you give this guy the bracha? Moving right along from here, what happens? Yitzhak gives the bracha, and like I said before, we're a little bit perplexed now. Right? Okay, on your sheet, we moved into Pasach Havzayin now. Yaakov comes close, and Yitzhak seems confused. He's blind, so he doesn't see which son it is. He thinks the voice sounds a little more like Yaakov than Esau. The Torah doesn't say why. One possibility is that he had different voices. He's their father. He simply knows what each voice sounds like. Alternatively, what Rashi suggests is that when Yaakov came to him and Yitzhak asked him, how do you get here so fast? Yaakov said, Hashem your God made it possible for me to get here more quickly. Right? And so, the puzzle cloth, if you want to see it on the screen, right? So, some Mephorshim, Rashi, Chazal, they, they take us to me. The, the voice of Yaakov is the voice that thanks Hashem. And certainly, whether that's exactly what Yitzhak meant, if he just meant the voice sounds more like Yaakov's voice, we all have that feeling, you know, because this is Yaakov, that's why he's thanking Hashem. And so seriously, Yitzhak, that's the song that, that's the voice you hear that you kind of like, and yet you're giving the bracha because you're kind of hoping this is still Esau based on how his hands feel? Really? That's what you want to do? And, and now, as this concludes, we're kind of doubly perplexed. On the one hand, we're not sure what Yitzhak was... We really aren't sure what he was thinking now. Is he blessing him because part of him thinks, you know, maybe this is Esau, maybe this really is Yaakov, but if it is Yaakov, well, the truth is I kind of like the fact that he was thanking Hashem here, or does he still think he's blessing Esau? It seems more likely he thinks he's blessing Esau, because as we scroll down... It says he, he trembles terribly. He's shocked when Esav comes in and says, I'm Esav, where's my bracha? Right? Isaac trembled very exceedingly. He, it's as if he's like stunned that he got duped and apparently he feels kind of bad because when all said and done, he does give Esav a bracha, right? He can't undo the previous bracha. But he still tries to give Esav somewhat of a bracha here in Pasuk Lametet, Pasuk Mem, right? It seems to be a positive blessing. I saw recently that Mordechai Breuer had this creative way of reading and Mital HaShemayim over here to mean somehow from in the sense of excluding. Like your land is going to be excluded from Tal Shemayim and Shemayim Haaretz. You're not going to live on such fertile and abundant land. But most traditional Mephorshim assume not that way, that Yitzhak is blessing him. So there's the way this translation translates it, that he's going to live, you know, in this land that has fat places of the earth. The dew of heaven. He's going to have the dew. He's going to have land that's going to be fertile. And so, after all that, after, you know, by now you should be asking yourself, Yitzchak, maybe you made a terrible mistake because it was meant to be that way. Maybe it's because Yaakov deserves a bracha. 
Yet you're still trying to work in some sort of a bracha for Esav. You're still trying to tell him, well, look, you know, when Yaakov's weak, you still will be able to throw off his oak, his yoke, excuse me. Come on, at this point, really, you're st- don't you get it? Seems kind of shocking. And then suddenly, after all this, confirming our perspective about Esav, Esav's a real sore loser, a real crybaby over here. When he first he- heard what happened, his reaction is, oh, Yaakov? Yaakov's a real shady character, a real dishonest guy. Right? Pesach Lam and over here. He did this to me again. He, stole, he, stole, he took my Bechorah. Notice Esav doesn't say he bought my Bechorah and you know, he paid for it. Just He took it, right? He robbed me then and now he robbed my Bracha too. So Esav was pretty, you know, pretty bitter over there. And in case that's not bitter enough for us, look at what Esav said at the end of this. I can't wait till my dad dies. They don't get to take care of Yaakov and kill him. He's showing us true colors that we all saw all along. This is Esav. This is the guy he wanted to bless. You know, the way he behaves at the end just confirms to us that all along we were right and Yitzchak, you completely blew this one. You completely missed it. And then shocking, after all that, after we figure Yitzchak's hopeless, no matter what he sees in Esav, He's never going to face the truth. Suddenly Yitzhak does this complete about face. Suddenly we move on to the next parak, and suddenly Yitzhak warmly summons Yaakov in, tells him, you know, I really want you to run away to Lavan, your uncle, because, you know, why? Because basically we don't want you to marry women over here. Pasuk Aleph, Lotikachi Shami Don't marry women from over here, right? Why is Yitzhak telling this to Yaakov and not to Esav? Esav already married Kanani women. Suddenly Yitzchak realizes, ah, Yaakov is the only one we can spare from this terrible sin of marrying Kanani O, which Esav already did. And suddenly Yitzchak's so warm and fuzzy, you blesses him, Kel Shakai should bless you, and you should be zochet of the bracha of Avraham. What's going on here? On the one hand, we want to cheer Yitzchak on, like finally he saw the light, but it took that long, really? Unbelievable. And yet, if we look back at all the same data a little more closely, I want to argue that in fact it's very believable. Let us begin again with this prophecy. What exactly was Rivka told? She has two nations in her stomach. Two nations, two peoples, One's going to be stronger than the other. Rav Yavod Sa'ir. Seems open and shut, right? She's being told in no uncertain terms, Esav is going to serve Yaakov. They're going to be two different nations. So clearly, just like Yitzhak, especially you should appreciate this, Yitzhak had several brothers. One of those brothers, Yishmael, as well as all the Keturah, were all excluded from Abraham's covenant with God. Only Yitzchak, sorry, only Yitzchak carries on Avram's covenant, Avram's breach with God. They should figure out right here the younger son is going to carry it on, the older son is not. Except, it's not really quite that simple. And I have to give a plug here. I teach biblical Hebrew at YU. And I always tell my students there's a big difference between learning through a translation and not learning through a translation. So we have our English here. This is the JPS 1917 translation. It tells us quite clearly 
that the elder shall serve the younger, right? So we think it's a very unambiguous phrase. Along comes the Radak, who didn't know from the JPS, but Radak was a grammarian, he knew biblical Hebrew. Um, so if you look on your source sheet, this is Radak on source number four. Radak says to us, Ravi Avod Sa'ir, Lo zachari mehem milat et, shimorel hapa'ul. The word et is missing. Who cares about that word et, right? We never, as English speakers, we hate that word et. Et's a word that you can't translate to English. So, we never notice when it's missing. We don't miss it. So, over here I tried to give an example in English. The man ate the ox. Who did the eating? The man. Let's say instead I wrote the ox ate the man. That would change the meaning radically, right? The ox ate the man, and some poor Nebuchadnezzar guy got eaten by an ox. In modern Hebrew as well, if I say, you know, hapar achal haish, it's not great grammar because I left out the word et, but basically the par would be eating the man. In biblical Hebrew, the word order between the nouns is very flexible. The man ate the ox, could mean, means there was some eating going on. One of them ate the other one. It's not clear which one did the eating, which one was eaten. Intuitively, we see this haparachalaish, where we want to say the ox ate the man. In biblical Hebrew, if I simply put the word et over here, et hapar achalaish, the ox, the man ate. In normal English, the man ate the ox. Et in Hebrew is called a direct object marker. That means it marks the word that's the object that had the action done to it. In biblical Hebrew, thanks to the word et, you can put the nouns in any order it wants. And if you don't know how's the reader supposed to know who did the eating and who was the eaten one, look for the word et. Except, in more, there are certain rules about that. One of those rules is that if the, if the word is indefinite, that means it does not have the word the in front of it, it's not a name. Just a man, uh, I don't see an eraser here, but imagine this Hayward God, hapar achal ish, you couldn't put the word et there. Et can only come if it's the man, the ox, or someone who's named, et Hashem, et esav. You can say et ish. And in more poetic verses, there's a tendency to drop that definite article, that the. So even though we know that there's one old son, one young son, the old one, the young one, we don't see that hey here. Instead of saying harav and hatsair, it just says rav and sair. And without the word et, what could rav yavod sair therefore mean? Rav, the old one, yavod sair, the young one will serve. So it's entirely possible, as Radak says, that this was a vision saying that Yaakov is going to serve Esau someday. Right? It's not, it, it's debatable, it's not clear. Didn't explain who's going to serve whom. Right? So when our doc writes it, he adds in the word et for us, so we know what the two options are. The Chumash doesn't have that, so Rivka gets an ambiguous nevuah. She knows somebody's going to serve someone, she doesn't know who. Who's going to serve whom. This is still... Not going to solve all our problems. At the end of the day, let's say they got this vision. They know one of them is going to serve the other one. 
Yitzhak still seems to be betting on the wrong horse pretty blatantly. Isn't it obvious to everyone Yaakov is the one to bet on? And so, Radak himself was so shocked by this, he said that my basic assumption that Yitzhak's preferred son was Esav is itself false. Radak in source number 5 tells us by Ahav, right, this is where the Torah told us that Esav was loved by Yitzhak, Yitzhak loved Esav. What really does the Torah mean? The Torah didn't say that Yitzhak loved Yaakov, because that goes without saying, who wouldn't love Yaakov? Yaakov's such a good guy. He's Ishtan, Yoshevo Halim. He's a shepherd. We know lots of nice shepherds in Tanakh. It was a nice Jewish profession back then. So of course, he loves Yaakov. Everyone loves Yaakov. The Chiddush is, he loves Yaakov, but he also loves Esav. Of course he loved Yaakov more than he loved Esav. It's obvious. Any, any parents with those two kids would obviously love Yaakov more. And that's why the Torah went out of its way to say, he loved Esav. Why? He loved about Esav that Esav brought him food to eat. Oops. Where is it? over here. He loved him because he did eat of his venison, right? He, he likes the fact that Esau brings him food. In other words, objectively he loves Yaakov because Yaakov is lovable. Esau was not lovable. At least Esau appreciates the fact that Esau brings him food to eat. This is shocking, Radak. I mean, think about this. It's not just that in this one pasuk I could live with that. But if that's the case, why is he trying to bless Yaakov, not bless Esau? If, if it's obvious Yaakov is the better kid, bless the better kid. Why bless the kid whom you also like because he has some redeeming traits, even though he has a lot of really bad traits too, you can bless the son who's really great. Hard to stomach this Radak. A different approach, which is not in front of you, appears in the Midrash Haggadol, which is a Midrash that was passed down through Yemenite Jews, which says Yitzhak basically was trying to do Kiruv. He knew Esau was a rotten guy, but he said, look, and this is, I think any parent who had a rebellious kid could relate to this. Esav is a rebellious kid. So what could I do? I could hate him, right? If I hate him, is that going to make him less rebellious? Is that going to make him a better person that his father disapproves of his actions and said, oh, by the way, you're being a horrible person, I hate you? Of course not. So Esav says, you know what? Even though objectively, any objective viewer would hate Esav, I'm not an objective viewer, I'm his father. And as his father, I feel a need to continue loving him. And I hope that if I continue to show him love, someday I'll get through to him and he'll improve. Now again, I could very much understand that in this context. It's saying Yitzhak loves Esau because Esau brought him stuff to eat, which could be viewed in a positive light. He did keep Av. So Yitzhak could be saying, look, he has his weaknesses, but as his father, I feel it's my job to continue loving him and seeing the, and emphasizing the positive traits. Keep being an optimist who sees the redeeming qualities that Esav has. But if that's the case, again, why give him the bracha? Why, especially if there's this nevuah that you already know about that tells you that one of these sons is going to be chosen over the other one. Why take the one who you think is a good, whom you think is a good Kiruv project, whom you're hoping you can reform, and pick him over the son who's already a great guy, especially when in the sequence of the events, you pick him right when he hits his low. I mean, right when Esav marries the Kananiyot, 
that's when we're telling ourselves, look, that's a serious decision, and this is his family now, right? That, that should be the point where Yitzhak should be saying to himself, I guess the Kiruv approach isn't working with him, because he married a, he's Hittite women anyway. That's what, exactly the point where he should be saying, okay, i got to draw some lines. Maybe I'll still love him some way, because he's still my son, but at least in terms of which son's going to carry on my legacy, it's got to be Yaakov. How could that be the moment when Yitzhak summons in Esau to bless him? So I want to go a different route. I want to argue that Yitzchak really didn't see it this way. First of all, the Nebuah was ambiguous. Not clear which son is the favorite son. Second of all, it's not entirely clear to me that this vision necessarily told us there had to be two completely different nations. Right? That's our assumption. There's a covenant with Avraham that among Avraham's sons, Yitzchak carried on. Yitzchak's the spiritual, spiritual heir to Avraham. And Avraham's other kids, Yishmael, Keturah's kids, they're out of here. And this vision is basically telling Rivka, your kids are going to be the same way. Yitzchak's going to have one son, Yaakov or Esav, who carries on the covenant that Yitzchak got from Avraham, and the other one is out. And we're further assuming Yitzchak knew this. So Barbanel says, well, are you sure Yitzchak knew this? Does it ever say in the Chumash that Rivka told Yitzchak, what this vision was? He never says that anywhere. Maybe he didn't know. If he did know, maybe he asked Rivka, who loved Yaakov, and you know, Rivka has this vision. Rivka's saying, you know, I think the vision was that the younger son is going to be stronger, and the older, elder son is going to serve him. Yitzchak's probably saying to him, I don't know about that. I like Esav. What exactly did God tell you? Oh, he told you Rabbi Avod Sa'ir? Yitzchak knows Hebrew. He knows that's ambiguous. Maybe Hashem really meant to see to say to you that Esau is going to be the better son. And Yitzhak may particularly be questioning this if it's not clear to him that only one of his kids will carry on this legacy. Now, at first glance, that is what the Chumar said, right? What did God say? Two nations are in thy womb, right? Shnei goyim, shnei le'umim, two nations. Two different words for nations. It's clear that there are going to be two different nations. But is it so clear? I'm not entirely convinced. If you look at the source number six, source number six is a vision that Yaakov gets much later on. Right? You have to fast forward here to Pasuk to Paraglamidhe. At this point, Yaakov is chosen pretty clearly. So, at this point, Yaakov's in Esav's out. What about Yaakov's kids? Is Yaakov going to have one or two kids carry on his legacy and the other kids will go form other nations? Or will they all be 12 tribes? So God appears to Yaakov. And what does he say to Yaakov here in Pesach Yudalef? I'm God, God Almighty. Pray or you'll be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. What's a kehal goyim? A kehal of nations? Doesn't that sound a lot like Yaakov's going to have some kids who are going to be in his covenant and form Am Yisrael, and some kids who are going to go off and form their own nations? That's what it sounds like to me. So Radak tells us in source number 6, Goy kal goyim, what does it really mean? Kulam yu goy echad miyuchad. They'll all be one nation, a goy, right? Like we all know, I mean, Yaakov doesn't know what's going to say in Sefer Shemua later, we all know in hindsight, we're going to be one nation, Goyachad. 
That's what God meant when He used the word goy first in the singular. And that goy, yekahal goyim, it'll be a, a community of nations. What's that community of nations? There'll be 12 tribes where the new one will be born. 11 of Yaakov's sons were born already. Binyamin's about to be born. There are going to be 12, what we call Shvatim. Those are called the Kahal Goyim, a community of nations. The nations here are the 12 Shvatim, just like the state of Israel is a sovereign state. We all live in the United States of America. We do not live in 50 sovereign states, but they're all states. They all have some level of independence. And a big part of our political discourse, exactly how much independence should they have, how much rights the states have as opposed to the federal government. We're always fighting about this, because we all know they're states, but we all know they're not exactly states, the same way the state of Israel is a state. So this word goyim is the same issue. So with Yaakov, when we all know, Radak knows in hindsight, I'm Israel is going to be one nation, so kahal goyim means a kahal of tribes. Is it so clear that couldn't have been the case in the fifth situation? I don't think it's clear at all. Chazal didn't think it was clear either. If we look back to source number two on the front of the sheet, Breshit Rabbah, Tani B'Shem Rabbi Nechemia, Rivka could have had 12 tribes. In other words, Rivka could have had the nation instead of being Am Yisrael, we could have been Am Yitzhak. It could have been I Goyim Lumim. Those words could have been interpreted the way they're interpreted for Yaakov. In hindsight, we know they mean something different. Yitzchak doesn't have hindsight. Yitzchak might not know about this Nebuah at all. If he ever did hear about it from Rivka, so he could be saying to himself the same things Yaakov must have been saying to himself after he got his vision about Kahal Goyim. I guess my kids are going to become such a vast nation, each tribe will have some independence like the states in the United States. They'll still be part of one nationality. You could be saying that. I'm going to skip the rest. It gives you a whole cheshbon because Rivka said, Lama Anochi and Zen Gamachi is 12, so they could have been like the 12 Shvatim. What this Medrash is essentially saying is, Yitzchak doesn't know what we know. Yitzchak thinks his kids are going to be Am Yitzchak. He loves Esav. What does it mean that he loves Esav? He wants to prefer Esav. He needs a leader for his nation. I think this totally changes our perspective. He's not looking for which son is going to be the nation that carries on his legacy, and he wants it to be Am Esav as opposed to Am Yaakov, Am Yisrael. He wants it to be Am Yitzchak, and he needs a leader. And for a leader, he wants the son who's tough, knows how to hunt, knows how to fight, brings food to his father, is a loyal son. Yaakov's a nice guy. Does Yaakov have what it takes to be a leader? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to find out when he goes to, out to Lavan, and at first he's not much of a leader, and he gets ripped off a lot, and eventually he learns how to stick up to Lavan and grows into that figure. Yitzhak doesn't see that right now. He sees two sons, one of whom can lead and one of whom can't lead. So he wants the son who can lead. With that in mind, we, we move right along towards the brachot and towards Esav's sins. And here, on the one hand, it's quite hard to stomach. Yitzchak is about to bless... Yitzchak is about to bless Esav, Dafka when Esav married these Canaanite women. That's very disappointing. I understand up until that point, Yitzchak is saying... 
my two sons are going to carry on my legacy together, and Esav has leadership qualities that Yaakov does not have. I, I'll tell me Yaakov should be the leader because he bought the Bechorah. Who says they told Yitzchak? Yitzchak doesn't know that. So Yitzchak, without knowing that, without knowing the Nevoah, or while thinking the Nevoah is vague, has to pick which son is going to lead. And right up until the last couple of Sukkim, right through Pasuk Lam and Gimel, he has every reason to pick Esau. But these two psukim really complicate this. Right here, Esav did the one big no-no that should make him outside this covenant. And here, it does seem to be a bit of a weakness of Yitzhak. He doesn't perceive that. The Torah is stressing it right here to lay the foundation for later. Because Yitzhak eventually is going to snap out of it. Eventually he's going to realize this. If we look towards Rashbam, on our source sheet, go back to the, the back side of the sheet, Rashbam, in source number 8, wants to know, why does the Torah tell us this right here? We were just reading a story that we skipped over about Yitzchak and Avimelech and the wells. Suddenly, you tell me about Esau marrying Hittite women. Why? Says Rashbam, Because eventually, Yitzchak's going to come to Yitzchak later and say, we don't want Yaakov marrying women like this. Yaakov's going to marry those, these women. And at that point... Yitzchak snaps out of it, summons in Yaakov and says, yeah, you know what? We don't want you marrying women like that. Go off to Lavan. And what does Yitzchak then do? Gives him the birkat of Avraham. Basically says, you're going to carry on Avraham's legacy. At that point, later on in the story, Yitzchak is going to realize this action of Esau puts him out. Out of the covenant altogether. It's not going to be Am Yitzchak, it's going to be Am Yisrael. And Esau's out. Yitzhak doesn't see it yet, but Rashbam said the Torah mentions this point. It wants to get us thinking, and really, in the back of Yitzhak's head, the seeds are being planted. All along, he's seen this clear trajectory towards his sons evolving into a nation with Esau as the leader. In the back of his head, he's starting to realize, you know, Esau has a strike against him. Nevertheless, Yitzhak wants him to be the leader, but maybe Esau's not quite so worthy, and so eventually that's going to become important. Moving right along, we get to the bracha. And with this bracha, we have to really ask ourselves now, what is Esau trying to bless him with? Yitzchak does not realize, remember, that Yaakov bought the Bechorah. And so I would suggest that what Yitzchak's trying to do is give Esau a bracha along the lines of what you'd give to a Bechor or a leader. And that should be reflected in the text of the bracha. Let's take a look at this text a little more closely. With the assistance of the computer over here. Yitzhak gives two bracha, right? This is the first bracha he then gives to Yaakov, and then on the other side, the other bracha he gives to Esau. And I tried to color two things here. I mentioned these two phrases, mitav hashamayim mishmanei ha'aretz in blue with Yaakov, and the similar bracha he gives to Esau, to say these brachot are basically parallel. I understand certain unfortunately have said, well, there's some difference. Yaakov has God's name with it, because God's going to do it for him. With Yaakov, it depends on if he's close to God or not. But they're basically parallel. Which means, in that sense, Yitzhak stole the mindset here, this is going to be one nation. This nation of Yitzhak's descendants deserves to live in a land of Shmanei 
this fertile, fat land, this land that gets Taha Shemayim, they're both going to live there. So in that sense, this whole parak, Yitzchak still thinks these two sons are going to be together, but he was sort of duped into giving the wrong bracha to Yaakov, so instead of saying, Esau's going to be the leader and Yaakov's going to follow, at least in Yaakov's bracha, he's saying, Yavzucha, nations will serve you, and you'll be stronger than your brother. As opposed to Esau, was told, When Yaakov gets his bracha, to focus on that part especially, simply the fact that his brothers will bow down to him, is that ironclad proof they're going to be different nations? I don't think so. I think if anything, it's the reverse. Does bowing down to someone mean you're not from the same nationality? Who do we bow down to? People bow down to kings, to leaders. It means Yaakov's going to be the leader. Yitzhak thought when he was giving it that he was telling Esau to be the leader because he thought this was Esau. So he's telling Esau, you're going to be the leader. You're going to be the leader of a nation living in Yitzhak's Mishmanei Haaretz. Then Yitzhak suddenly realizes that things don't quite work that way. And that narrative in between, I want to suggest, Yitzhak's already starting to have some doubt. Because what happens in between before he gives the bracha to Esau? Esau comes in, so Yitzhak knows he's been duped. Esau is furious, he's not really showing the best midot. And what exactly does Esau tell Yitzhak as a complaint of how terrible Yaakov is, why this isn't fair? What did Yaakov do? He ripped me off twice. He stole my bachora, now he steals my bracha. That's news to Yitzhak, isn't it? Says the Midrash Tanchuma over here, in source number three on the front side of the sheet. Esav starts screaming here. You know, Dad, this isn't fair. Yaakov's always been cheating me. He's always been ripping me off. I'm like, Aviv, ma'aselcha. Yitzhak says, what do you want me to do? Esav says, Yaakov's terrible. He already stole my bachora. That's really interesting. That's what had me all concerned until now. I was horrified because I thought I gave this bracha to someone who's not really the bachor. I didn't know about any sale. Maybe I violated the laws of what's fair. I blessed the younger son before the older son. Now that I already blessed him, Someone suggests amending this text with the, flipping the letters in the word kvar. Ata shebechor beirachtiv. Now that I blessed him as the bechor, because he is the bechor. Gambaruchia. He's also going to be blessed. Because Kunia and that pasuk says very succinctly, piv hichshilo. Esav's own mouth was machshil him and brought about his downfall. Esav thought he's going to tell his dad what a horrible crook Yaakov was. Yaakov stole the bechor from him. Yitzchak, he's not that dumb. He says, wait a minute. Yaakov already had the Bechorah from you? Then I did the right thing. And now Yitzhak's already in doubt. I want to suggest that you look at the bracha he's giving to Esau already. On the one hand, he's still giving them the same land. On the other hand, it could be you're going to worship him like you worship a king. But when he's weak, you're going to throw off his burden. Would Yitzhak be encouraging you know, sedition against the king? Already in Yitzhak's mind, it's not so clear that there's two tribes of the same nation. Maybe they're going to be two nations. What does Rivka brilliantly do under these circumstances? 
Rivka knows Esav's bad news. Rivka knows Esav now is going to try and kill Yaakov. She's got an opening. She could go to Yitzchak and say, Yitzchak, you know what? Esav, whom you're already getting suspicious of, is such a rotten guard, do you know he's plotting to kill Yaakov? But she doesn't do that. She goes to him and says instead, you know what? We don't want Yaakov marrying these women. She never says who the these is, right? We just don't want Yaakov marrying these women. What's she getting at? Who exactly are are these women? So if we look back to page two over here, I gave you a quote from Yosef Bukhor Shor. Sorry, excuse me, back to Rashbam, I mean. Look back to that Rashbam, I remind you what Rashbam had said. Rashbam had said earlier, when the Torah said, Vatiana Morat Ruach, was foreshadowing what's going to happen later. Now Rashbam comes in source number nine, says, If Yaakov takes one of these women, She's said this in a very sharp, a very smart way. To get Yaakov away from Esav, get Yaakov off to safety. She doesn't tell you it's because of Esav's hatred. Instead, she realizes what's the one thing that's been planted in the back of Yitzchak's mind all along from the previous pack. The one knock against Esav when Yitzchak was going to bless him was, I'm going to bless him, but in the back of my mind, maybe I have some regret because he married Canaanite women. So now, while Yitzchak is aware that he could be fooled, so that creates some self-doubt. While he's aware that apparently the way it was meant to be was for the bracha to go to Yaakov, that Yaakov had the Bechorah, all that, Rivka really lowers the boom here and says, remember that one thing that always bothered you about Esav? Subtly, she doesn't say Esav's name. We don't want Yaakov doing that. Yaakov wouldn't do that, right? And finally, the the last stage is completed. Yitzchak's internalized. A, Yaakov deserves the Bechorah. But B, more than that, only Yaakov is fit to carry on the legacy. And that's why he summons in Yaakov for a new bracha. And this new bracha is a very different bracha. Look at the parallels here. It parallels the bracha God gave Avraham and gave him the midst of Brismila. In other words, the covenant of Avraham. What is this bracha? It uses the name Kel Shakai, which is used very sparingly in the book of Breshit. But repeatedly when the Torah wants to say the bracha of Brismila is being given again, suddenly the name Kel Shakai appears. So Kel Shakai will bless you. How will he bless you? With lots of kids. Viafrecha, viarbecha. Viarbecha. Which is what God told Abraham. Viarbeotcha. Right? You're going to have a lot of kids. You're going to get what land? You and your Zerahs, Aretzahaytach, are going to get Eretz Megurecha, the land of your sojourning. That's what Eretz Canaan's called in the time of the Avot, because they didn't rule the land, but they sojourned in it. Brit, Benabitarim, if you look at that inside, there God is talking about the land being given more long term. Then when he appears to Moshe in Egypt, he tells Moshe that, you know, I promised the Avot Eretz Megureham, and now you're going to take Am Yisrael to this land, Talachem Morasha, now they're going to inherit it for real. So in Breshi, when the Avot live in it, it's Eretz Megurecha. That's what Avram was promised at Brit Milah. So that, exactly what Yitzhak tells Yaakov is, all the same code words from that Brit Milah, that covenant of Yafrachav Yerbecha, Eretz Megurecha, Kel Shakai. And we know God wanted it to be this way, that the covenant goes only with Yaakov. 
I put here Yaakov's third bracha. That's the bracha we peaked at before of Goyen Kahal Goyim. That's much later when Yaakov returns from Lavan. God himself gives him the same bracha. He says, I am Kel Shakai. Again, pray Urve, like Yafrachavi Arbecha. I'm confirming Yitzhak's bracha. Malachim You're going to give birth to kings. That was said to Abraham all the way in the right hand column over here. And again, you're going to inherit the land. Like Yitzhak said, or like God told Abraham. So finally, finally, this covenant is passed down to Yaakov by Yitzhak and again confirmed by God. And so what I'm arguing is that Yitzhak, the way he sees things, as long as he thinks these are going to be two tribes of one great nation, it makes perfect logical sense to make Esav the leader, even despite Esav's flaws. His flaws reflect his strength, his might, traits that you actually want in a leader. In case you're not convinced yet, in case you're still saying, Esav Harasha, come on. So over here, I tried to summarize for you on the blackboard, first time I wrote in chalk in a while, a couple of Esav's most despicable traits. He had this impulsive, sort of harsh way of speaking, his tendency that he despises the Bechora. He reacts very quickly. He throws a temper tantrum on the spot when the bracha is stolen from him. He tries to harm his brother, right? He makes a death threat against Yaakov after Yitzchak dies. Even before they get a sense they don't exactly love each other in the whole song of the Bechora, he marries a Canaanite. Which other character in Rashi can we say all this about? Yehuda. Yehuda, who is our leader, Yehuda was selected by Yaakov to be the leader, right? If we only knew the certain aspects of Yehuda, and granted I'm oversimplifying in an unfair way, I don't mean to say that Yehuda ends up like Esav. What does Yehuda do? He gets a bracha very similar to Esav's bracha. Yaakov knows what bracha was intended for Esav. That's the bracha he gives Yehuda. Esav was told, You're going to be mightier than your other brothers, they're going to bow down to you. So what does Yaakov tell Yehuda? Your brothers will acknowledge you. And they're going to bow down to you. He has to say, because Yaakov has four wives. So not all Yehuda's brothers are children of the same mother. But otherwise, he's giving Yehuda the same bracha. It's a violent bracha. It talks about miteref b'ni alita, which... A lot of us were raised on Chazal. We say, Mitaref Alita. He rose up from the, the teref, the violent incident of Tarof Toraf Yosef. That's not the simple pshat. You look in Rashbam, which I gave you on your sheet. Rashbam says rather adamantly, it's the reverse. If you know that Rashbam points to the truck, there's a puzzle note on Mitaref. Mitaref, from tearing up like a lion, because Yehuda is compared to a lion, from killing the way that lions kill, Bini, my son Yehuda, Alita, you rose up from that. In other words, it's describing Yehuda as a lion who devours his prey, then he sort of sits up and then ch- chills, relaxes, Ravatz he's relaxing, all satisfied, after he devoured his prey. That's violent. That's what you want in Yehuda. That's David that's who goes after Goliath. That's who you want as your king. Rashbam says, to explain it otherwise is to distort the trap. He says it rather harshly, given this, especially considering he's talking about his grandfather Rashi's interpretation. But the trap, this is a violent bracha, and that's why Yehuda is being praised. He's going to take this out on Israel's enemies. That's what we want. 
Ah, I'll say it's not the exact same words. It's Hayoducha Achacha. It's not quite the same as Gevir Lachacha. Maybe Gevir Lachacha that Yitzhak said was meant to be stronger, that he thought it was going to be a separate nation that will rule over. So I'll say no, because the author of Divir Hayamim, when he comes over here, when he describes what happened to you, he says, Yehudat Gavar Be'achav, like Kavei Gevir Lachacha. He retells Yehudah's selection. The puzzle before is about Reuven, explaining how Reuven was the natural before, lost out to Yosef and Yehuda. Yehuda Gavar Be'achav. He's the Gavir. He basically has the bracha that Yitzchak meant for Esav. In terms of the issue of Yehuda's wives, it says quite explicitly that he married the daughter of a Kna'ani. Chazal and many Meforshim attempted to explain this Kna'ani as being a merchant. Sadin Hastava Timkor V'chagor Natnala Kna'ani. So Timkor, she sells. So she did it with a Kanani. must be the Kanani's a merchant. Ibn Ezra, kind of gently, so subtly hints over here in source number 11, Yeshomrim, Socher, you'd have married a Canaanite, meaning a merchant. Then he says, But honestly, it could also be like it's simple meaning. Maybe Yehuda really married a Canaanite. Then right away, he quotes you a different Medrash. Telling us how when it says Vayered Yehuda, Yehuda went down, descended. Hazal took that to mean he lost his standing, he lost his gedula. So Hazal didn't say that about whom he married. Hazal thought he married a merchant's daughter. And even as he was going to explain a different phrase, if you look closely, I think he's juxtaposing them. And if you see the pasuk inside, you'll see these phrases are not back to back. First it says Vayerdi Yehuda. Ibn Ezra puts his comment on Vayerdi Yehuda after he just told you Yehuda married a Kanani, which is written later in the Pasuk. He wants them next to each other. So after he just kind of gently said to you, by the way, the word Kanani really means, might really mean a Canaanite. By the way, Chazal anyway said Yehuda wasn't at his best over here. So to sum up, Yehuda has a lot of these same negative traits in potential. He marries a woman who seems a lot like a Canaanite. He sells his brother into slavery, which is about harming a brother. He's prone to impulsive reactions. He sees a prostitute on the side of the road. He does not know this is really Tamar, and therefore he should be with her. He's with her because he gave into his impulse and was a prostitute. He finds out afterwards that Tamar, Tamar became pregnant, presumably in an adulterous way. He says, okay, kill her. Where's the trial? Is it even clear that's the halacha for her? She wasn't married at the time. She was a widow. You have to assume they had an idea like Yibam then that was so strong that even though her husband's dead, simply for not waiting for Yehuda's other son to do Yibam, that's a capital offense to burn her at the stake for. And it's not like he said, we're going to have a court case, so we'll bring in some legal analysts and discuss if that's what to do. He said, kill her! That's Yehuda at his worst. The thing is, we also all know Yehuda at his best. From that moment, with Tamar's back against the wall, where she takes out Yehuda Simonim and says, oh, the guy who impregnated me was this guy, and Yehuda says, Sarkamimeni, yeah, she's actually more right than I am. I wronged her. I owe her an apology. From then on, the good of Yehuda comes out, and he becomes a hero. So if you want to understand Yitzchak's love towards Esav, what I would suggest in closing is Yitzchak wanted Esav to be Yehuda. Yitzchak saw those traits. Yitzchak, his whole life, is hoping that's how it's going to be. And then, uh, sadly, it all comes crashing down at this moment where the wrong son gets the bracha. And suddenly, in hindsight, Yitzchak learns at that moment that, in fact, 
the Bechorah already belonged to Yaakov, Yitzhak maybe now starts to realize, if you knew about the Nevuah, oh, what God really meant was that Rav Yavod Sa'ir, the elder serves the younger, not the younger serves the elder. And right at that moment, Rivka says, oh, by the way, don't forget, Esav married Kananio, that's not really very forgivable. All in all, Yitzchak suddenly gets this 20-20 hindsight to put it all together and realize Esav is not going to be a Yehuda. Esav crossed the line when he married the Kananiyot. That was the red line that couldn't be passed. Yehuda, I mean, it's sad, he lost his wife, but it works out very conveniently for the plot. Yehuda never has to answer for that, because you, when Yehuda develops into good Yehuda, his tiny wife is dead already. But Esau's not going to change. And that moment, Yitzhak finally says, okay, if that's how it's going to be, it's going to be that only one son gets to carry on the legacy, the covenant of Avraham. That son has to be Yaakov. I better give him Birkat Avraham and make sure he does not repeat the mistake of marrying Kananit. Thank you very much.